We're in Genesis. We're almost done with it. So we are now in the happy part of Genesis. There's a lot of sad, hard parts in Genesis that we've gone through. Now we've arrived at the cool, really good part. So it always saddens me to talk to people around the holidays who say this to me, like they don't like Christmas, they don't like New Year because they don't like their family. It's always like, oh, that stinks, man. I don't wanna talk to him, I have this problem, this issue. And I always tell them, listen, as bad as your family might be, there are worse families in the Bible. Like, no way, yeah, totally. Let me tell you about one, this family right here. What family has had one of their siblings sold into slavery by the other siblings? Anyone? Yeah, probably not. What family here has two mass murderers in them? Simeon and Levi. Yeah, probably not any of them, right? What, what family had a brother put in prison by another brother and held there for a whole year even though he had done nothing wrong? Now, we may have wanted to do that, but we refrain from doing those things, right? What family had one of the brothers put contraband in another brother's backpack so he went across an international border, he was arrested? Again, we may have wanted to do that, but we didn't. That's this family. They're a broken, ganked up, messed up family. And here at the end of our story, is what's happening is God has taken the sin and the junk and the evil and the grossness, and he is weaving it all into redemption and reconciliation and this brilliant, beautiful ending because that's what God is able to do. And I tell that to people. Trust, trust God. He can take really messed up families and bring incredible ends to them. And that's this story. So here's where we're at right now in this story. We have a dad who has to make a decision about where to live. And this is a major decision because at this time in his life, he has three wives that are alive. He has 11 sons, one daughter, and a mess of grandkids. 66 total people that are now looking to him for guidance. That's massive. Think about that. How would you move that crew? It would take five 15-passenger vans just to fit the family in, right? That's insane. And then on top of that, you get somewhere, what do you tell the real estate agent? So what are you looking for, sir? Three bedroom, two bath? Yeah, no, no, something a little bit bigger than that. Maybe 66 rooms, I don't know. I got three wives, maybe separate quarters, I don't know. Like, what are you, the Bhagwan Rajneesh? Yeah, pretty much. Right, so it's a massive undertaking. On top of that, here's what Jacob knows. He is supposed to be planted in the promised land, this land given to him. And now he's being asked to leave the promised land and go to Egypt, a land that God had told his dad Isaac, don't go there. A land that his grandpa, when he had gone there, got into really serious problems. So now you've got this guy trying to figure out what's God's will for my life here. What should I do? Should I move my whole family? And I think we can glean in this last adventure of Jacob before this book closes, we can glean some wisdom if maybe you're asking those questions. I don't know God's will. 
Should I move to this city? Should I take that job? Should I start that business? Should I get married to this person? Should I adopt that child? You, maybe you've got questions about God's will. Well, I think there's some wisdom that Jacob gives us as he walks this out that can help guide you and me. In fact, when I went through it, I found 10 things that he does. I'm not gonna do all 10. I'll do four, because that's about all I can get to, right? So you might mark these down, because they might help you in deciphering what God would have for you, right? So number one, you can look at chapter 45. Verse 28, here's what's happened. News has come back to Jacob. His name is also called Israel. If you don't know his story, Jacob was his given name, means heel snatcher. And then he wrestles with God this one night. And God renames him, not heel snatcher, but Israel, which means winner or prevailer. So that's how he's referred to here. So news has come to Israel, to Jacob, that his son is prime minister and he's invited him down to Egypt. So this is where number one thing you gotta get if you're finding God's will. Look what Israel says, Jacob, verse 28. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Should I go down there? Yes, I want to go there. Number one, when it comes to God's will, you should desire it. This should be good news for you. Because there is in the back of our mind this idea that if we wholly gave ourselves to God and really followed his plan perfectly, he would ask us to do something we hate. You ever felt like that? Like, oh, I'm kind of afraid. What will God ask me to do? He'll send me to the, like, the rainforest where there's spiders that I hate and snakes that I hate and I'll have to eat bugs and there won't be any toilet paper. I don't wanna go there, right? There's, that kind of is in our mind. Well, number one, what you see is even though he's moving to a place he's not sure about, he has the desire to go down there, right? Let me try to reframe that for you with my brother-in-law. Clyde, my brother-in-law for 10 years was a missionary down in Brazil and he was not in Rio at the beach. He was in the Amazon rainforest where everything has teeth. The butterflies will bite you down there. I mean, you look at them and they smile and they have teeth like a piranha and they take you off your finger. So it's a really, really dangerous place. So Clyde was down there for about seven years. He came back for a furlough and I'm with Clyde and we were chopping up some wood for somebody that needs some wood chopped up. So we're chopping this wood and as we're chopping it, there are these little bugs in there. They're actually pretty big. They're called wood borers. Have you ever seen those? If you haven't, I have a picture of one. That's a wood borer, right? So that will be in wood. So we're chopping up this wood and there's this wood borer right in there, a bunch of them actually. And so I thought, I'm gonna show Clyde what kind of man I am, that I am USDA certified grade A stallion. So I picked up one of those and I said, look at this, Clyde. Huh? Yeah. And Clyde's like, oh, that's cool. He grabs one, huh? starts eating it. Man, that is really tasty. He grabs another one. Yum, I had spit mine out secretly. He's like, man, these are so good. Moral of the story is don't challenge a missionary to a bug eating contest. <laughs> you will lose and they'll find like a new protein source. He's like, I wonder what the protein content is on these things. I'm like, dude, you are crazy. <laughs> what happened to Clyde? He loves it. He loves bugs. 
and spiders and the Amazon and rivers and fishing. He loves it. What's even more amazing is his wife loves it. You should see her eat wood borers. It's amazing. <laughs> She's gonna get so mad at me. <laughs> right? It's your desire is going to line up with God's will. It's Psalm 37, four. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's gonna be a desire. That's good news. I was in class one time with a professor. He's a theology professor. And it was in the little break time and he was asked by one of the students, like, I don't know God's will for my life. And this is a younger guy. And the answer to me struck me. He said, what do you love to do? Find a way to make money at that. I thought, what a fascinating answer. What do you love to do? Okay, figure out a way to make money at that. Wow, that's really a cool thing to say. I talk to young people that sometimes will say, Matt, I wanna go into ministry. What should I do? This is what I will tell them. I will say, I think the best ministry happens when your greatest pleasure meets the world's deepest needs. The greatest things that have happened to me as I read over history is a man or a woman that has this passion for something at the same time that the world has this great need for it. Whether it's adoption ministries or safe families. Safe families birthed because a man really loved families and kids in Chicago and his passion for kids and passion for family birthed this incredible ministry. Orphans, whatever it is, widows, that kind of thing. I think about Jacob and his son, Joseph. Jacob knew right away, Joseph is a really good admin guy. At 17, he put him in charge of everything. Gets sold into slavery, goes to Egypt. When Egypt needs a guy that can store up seven years of plenty to save millions of people from seven years of famine. It's his administrative gift that meets the world's greatest need. And that's, that's how you know. You will know, you'll know God's will because you'll have a desire for it. I think about Eric Liddell. Who here has watched Chariots of Fire? Okay, if you're young, it's mostly older people like myself. If you're young, rent that movie. It's a brilliant story. Eric Liddell goes on to become a gold medalist at the 1924 Olympics. And it's the story of how that happens. Just a great, great story. But the religious people of his day said this to Eric Liddell before he went to the Olympics, before he wins gold at the Olympics, he's that good. They said, why are you running? You should be a missionary instead. What a bummer, huh? So they said this to him and his answer was this, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that answer. And I think about Eric Liddell, if he had gone and done what the religious people told him to do, we would miss out on this story that has inspired millions of people to pursue Jesus. Man, number one, you should have a desire. You should have this deep desire for what God has for you. And in 2018, maybe in these next couple of days, you need to take some time and sit and journal and think, what are my deep God-glorifying desires? And just write them out and start praying over, God, maybe one of these things is what you have for me. And it takes some time. Number one, God's will, I think, begins with desire. But number two, to balance that, there has to be an open door. So if you know chapter 45, here's what you learn. 
Jacob has been invited down to Egypt by the Pharaoh. He has an invitation. Jacob has been given a city or an area called Goshen to live in. And Jacob has been given, verse 19, wagons to take him from the promised land down to Goshen. He's got an open door, right? He has this desire, but it's not a desire like, well, I don't know how I'm gonna make that happen. It's a desire that's now, there's a location for you to move to. There's an invitation from the king to stay there. And there are provisions, first-class accommodations for you to get down there. It's an open door. Now that might seem obvious, but here's why I say it. Because if you grew up at all in a church environment like mine, there's something that was twisted in my brain that I had to untwist. And it was this. It was the idea that this book is like a magic book. And if you learn to just rub this book right, a genie will pop out and give you three wishes and you can do whatever you want, right? Maybe you have that idea with this book. And here's why it started with me. I'll give you the story. I was in the eighth grade. I'm going to a youth group at Foursquare. Uh, the youth pastor sat up there. I can remember where I sat and looking at him when he said it, he said this to us. He said, listen, boys and girls, if you will memorize scripture, God will give you whatever you want. I was like, ding, 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 really? Because as an eighth grader going into the ninth grade, I had one desire in life. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my hero, Joe Montana, and be an NFL quarterback. But I was five foot one and 90 pounds, right? So I went, like literally after that, I went up and I'm like, you're telling me if I'll start memorizing the Bible that God will give me whatever I want. Oh yeah, totally, yeah, totally 100%. I'm like, yes, right? No matter what I memorized, no matter what I did that summer, when I went to school in September, I was still five one and 90 pounds, and the Grants Pass football team was not starting me at quarterback because I couldn't see over the linemen when they got down. That just wasn't gonna happen. It never changed. And this was a deep desire in my life. So at Oregon State, my freshman year at Oregon State, I move up there, I move into my dorm room. Everyone's like putting up pictures of like women in bikinis. Guess what? One poster I put up in my room, Joe Montana. Because I thought the beavers are so bad, maybe I can start here. Maybe they'll hire me here. <laughs> right? So, so there's this idea like you can just kind of rub this book and whatever you want to do is going to happen. No. I think the second thing you got to ask, is this thing actually doable? Wise people poke at their desires to make sure they're doable. That's what they do. Jesus puts it like this. It's Revelation 3 verse 8. He says, I open doors that no man can shut and I shut doors, no man can open. And too often what can happen is we can get an idea in our head and Jesus has shut the door and we're just beating our head against a closed door. But Jacob here knows, no, this is doable. I've got an invitation from the king. I've got these wagons that have been sent to me and I've got a place to live when I get there. Hmm, that's doable. That's an open door. As believers, when we're trying to find out God's will, it should be a desire, and then we should start looking for some open doors. And when the open door matches up with our desire, you go for it, right? You wanna be a missionary in Africa. And the folks dads invite you to Uganda. 
That seems like an open door. Hmm, maybe I should go check that out, right? You, you wanna be a doctor and now you have a scholarship to a school. Well, that seems like an open door. You wanna play music. You've been invited into a band that's gonna tour. Maybe that seems like an open door. Our desire should meet up with an open door and then you go through it. That's the second thing that you see right here. So desire, open door, but thirdly and very importantly, look what Jacob does. It's chapter 46, verse one. So Israel, his other name, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He's living in Hebron. He sees, man, I have this desire. It seems doable. So I'm gonna start making preparations. I'm gonna move toward Egypt. But on his way, he stops at Beersheba. He stops there. He's made preparations. He's moving that direction. But now he stops for a day or a week or a month. It doesn't tell us how long. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So now he's moving, feels like this is God's direction, but he stops in this city called Beersheba. If you know Genesis, Beersheba is a really important city. It was a city that his grandfather Abraham dug a well in and it says he planted a tamarisk tree there and he called on the name of God, the everlasting one. It was a city that his grandfather had really started and it was a place that his grandfather had called upon God there. And then his dad, Isaac, Abraham's son. In Genesis 26, when Isaac's trying to dig wells, trying to find his place in life and there's strife and there's contention and there's problem after problem. Isaac retreats to Beersheba and goes to Beersheba and he builds an altar and he makes a sacrifice and God shows up to him there and actually gives him the Abrahamic covenant, takes the covenant that he made with Abraham and bestows it on Isaac there in this same city, Beersheba. So now Jacob trying to figure out God's will for his life. Seems like this thing is the way to go, but he's unsure because he remembered his dad was told not to go to Egypt and his grandpa had trouble in Egypt and the promised land seems like the place. So where does he go? He goes to the place that his grandpa had heard from God and his dad had heard from God. He goes there. I love that. Dad, mom, where's your kid going when they need to hear and be directed by God? Do they have a Beersheba? Where's your kid going when he hear, needs to know, what's God's will for me? What am I supposed to do? Where are they going? Dr. Phil? Oprah? Where are they going? Jacob here, who's not the model believer. We've studied his life. Bro is up and down, man. Sometimes brilliant, and then sometimes he, you're, you're just a bonehead, 
right? He is an up and down believer. He knows this, there's a spot to go. When I go there, I know I'm gonna hear from God because that's where my dad went and that's where my grandpa went and that's where I'm gonna go. I love that. I know this about my own kids. I have five children. I know some things. I know number one, at some point, my kids are going to have to wrestle with their faith, like everyone does, to make it their own. That they're gonna go through what every Christian has to, everyone's gonna go through a Jabok like Jacob did. They're all gonna wrestle with doubts. Is this thing real? Is Jesus the way? They're gonna have to wrestle through that. I know that's coming for all my kids. Number two, in that I trust in the faithfulness of God to bring them through. Just like he's brought me through, just like he's brought you through, I just keep trusting in God's faithfulness. Number three, I know when they emerge that the faith they have in Jesus won't look exactly like my faith. And that's gonna be very hard for me because I think I'm always right on these matters. And I pray for the grace and the wisdom to allow my children to walk out their faith in Jesus the way they're supposed to. That orthodoxy does not stop with Matt Heverly. I pray for the grace to do that. You can pray for that same grace in my life. And fourthly, fourthly, I hope that my wife and I, because of the way that we have lived, that we have set up Beersheba's where they can return to because they know that's what my mom and that's what my dad did when they lived. And that's what we're gonna do as well. The priorities and how they lived their life, how they ordered things. I'm gonna return to those things. I pray that that's what's true about me. Do you have Beersheba's? Maybe generational Beersheba's. Do you have those? I hope you do. What is a Beersheba, Matt? Are we supposed to build an altar and like kill an animal on it? Because I'm not doing that. No, we're New Testament, but let me give you two possible ways to be building things, legacies in your life that are passed down. Number one is this. The New Testament says that when we praise, when we sing praise songs, it's Hebrews 13, that's a sacrifice of praise. That that does something, it's a sacrifice. We come together and we sing. And what I found is like Jacob here, he makes a sacrifice and in that sacrifice, he hears from God. There was a moment in my life where during the sacrifice of praise, I heard from God, a Beersheba for me. So it was the year 2004. I was trying to make some big decisions in my life. I was working as an engineer, uh, moving into management. The company owner had said that he wanted me to take over his position. So there's a lot of opportunity over there. And I begin to think maybe my job is to work hard, be good with money so I can be generous, which is a great vocation. And I was gonna be okay with that. But on the other side, there was this nagging thing like, I kind of want to be doing what I'm doing right now. So there, there, I was in this dilemma and I was wrestling with God for a couple of months on this thing. And then we as a family did what we did as a family. We went to church. That was our Beersheba. It's what we've always done. I go, and when I travel with my family, we go to church. It's just what we do. It's our Beersheba, corporate worship. So we're in church. It's a Wednesday night. We're singing. It was during the praise time. And I'm standing up, hands are raised. When, I can't say I've ever heard God's audible voice, 
But this was as close as I've ever got. Because there was in that moment, as I'm standing and praising, there, there was like impressed in my heart as deep as it could be. And it was this, Matt, what do you want to do? It was so like, mm, that I actually stopped singing and put my hands down and stood there. What do I wanna do? And I said, I wanna teach your word. And then as strong as I've ever felt before, then teach my word. Okay, that's what I'm doing, right? Two weeks after that, I actually got invited on staff at Applegate, out of the blue, had no idea it was coming. But it was like, God was saying, Matt, what do you really desire? What do you really desire? And it happened when I was with God's people offering the sacrifice of praise. There is something in corporate worship you cannot get it on a podcast. You cannot get it at home. You can't get it listening in, in your headphones. You can't get it. It's the two or more are gathered, I'm there. It's the Hebrews 10, 24, that we provoke each other to love and good works. There's something about corporate worship to me as a Beersheba. We have made that a priority for our family. My mom made it a priority for my family. My wife's dad made it a priority for his family. It's our Beersheba. I think that's a big one. Number two, the other Beersheba is this, and I'll just read this for you. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse 14. And there's a crescendo here. It just says, do this, do this, because this is God's will. If you wanna know God's will, just study 1 Thessalonians five. Listen to this. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. That's an easy one. <laughs> Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, and here's the kicker, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The Bible just says, essentially, I'll summarize this. Be doing the things Jesus loves to do and you'll be in God's will. Be about the things that Jesus loves to do and you're just gonna find yourself in God's will. Bob Goff has this great little book called Love Does. And in that book, he has this little section on finding God's will. And he says this, stop worrying about all that stuff. Get out there and love everybody. I think that's brilliant. We can get so caught up in like, oh, this, well, First Thessalonians 5, would you say, get out there and be doing Jesus stuff. And you'll be amazed at how you get directed when you're just doing Jesus stuff. Okay, another testimony. 1996, um, I decided to do a, short-term mission trip to Carmen Sardon. I just want to be doing Jesus stuff. On that trip, we go down there. We're helping out with orphans. We're that kind of stuff in Mexico. On that trip, I meet this guy for the first time. I knew nobody at this, on this trip. I meet this guy for the first time. His name is Mark Scudstad. We start up a conversation. We start talking a bunch. Like, what are your dreams? What are your hopes? What are you, this kind of stuff? Well, this is what I want to do. And so Mark Scudstad, because of that trip, invites me to come live with him in his basement where I receive my nickname, Matt Matt, the basement rat, <laughs> All right? So I was termed Matt Matt, the basement rat. And there, because I was there for a year, not paying rent, he fed me, 
Um, he almost clothed me. He did everything for me. For a year, I was able to pay off all my school loans and go to the school ministry and then go on the mission field in Vanuatu. And the rest is history. How'd that get started? I was just doing Jesus stuff. Hey, I, I'm gonna go help some orphans. Hey, I wanna love everyone. Do good to everybody. I wanna rejoice. I wanna pray. You, you just do that. It's amazing what happens when you're doing Jesus stuff, how you make connections with people or with certain kind of things or ideas come to you. You're like, oh, that's exactly it. When you're just doing, that's what 1 Thessalonians 5 says. Do Jesus stuff because you'll find God's will right there. It's amazing. In 2018, I would say to families especially, be building Beershebas where your kids can look back and know, this is what my mom and dad did. And I'm right now going through some stuff. So I'm gonna go back to this Beersheba so I can know by legacy what I'm supposed to do. So he goes there and he listens and God tells him, go there because I'm gonna build the nation there. I'm not gonna destroy you. I'm gonna build you in Egypt. And then lastly is this one. There's a ton, Wednesday we'll get to more. But there's an attitude that jo Jacob has that's brilliant, that should be the attitude of every single believer. So skip forward to chapter 47. He's now moved his family to Goshen. They're settled in there. And Jacob is taken by his son, the prime minister Joseph, to meet the Pharaoh. So here's how it goes, verse seven. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? How awesome is that? The first thing Pharaoh says to Jacob when he wanders into his throne room is like, bro, how old are you? I mean, how bad must have Jacob looked at this point? We know his hip has been out. We know he's 130 years old. He's probably blind. Pharaoh's like, how in the world are you still alive, man? No political correctness here. Dude, how old are you? You are old. Here's his answer. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojournings are 130 years, few and evil, have been the days of the years of my life and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. I love that. Here he is. He's settled in Goshen, one of the most beautiful places. In Egypt, which is the most powerful nation in this area, the only place that has bread, the only place that has what you need. And he's now in front of the most powerful man in Egypt. And in all this, he's like, hey, Goshen is great. Egypt is awesome. But then he says this, I'm just a sojourner. The word there is the Hebrew word magor. And it literally means temporary abode. Hey, Goshen's great. Egypt is awesome. Great. But you know what, Pharaoh? My tent stakes aren't deep here. I'm just a sojourner. Just like my dad and his dad were sojourners. Our tent stakes don't go deep. And while I like it here right now, if God should call me at 130 years of age to leave, I'm out of here because that's what I am. I'm a sojourner. That's to me the attitude. The mistake we make about God's will is this. We think God's will is a landing spot when God's will is a lifestyle. 
We think if I could just get the answer to this looming question in front of me, this job, what career, what school, should I marry him? Should I marry her? Should I move to that city? So we have this idea that once I get this answer, then I'm good. Like that God's was a landing spot. No way. Think about it. When you finally answer the question who you should marry, were you like, well, you know what? I'm good. I don't need God anymore. Some people do do that. Some young men come here, steal our girls and leave. So know this, I'm watching you and I'll send Chad Hansen after you. Okay, that's what's coming. <laughs> no, you, you answer that question. You just know there's more questions to come. That's not it. There's more, there's more. So I tell young men this when they ask me. I say, listen, chase the king and you'll love where you end up. It's a lifestyle, chase the king. Have your life about being chasing him, not some kind of destination that you've arrived at, just chase Jesus and you'll love where you end up. Because Jesus said this, he said, I am the way. Not, I'll show you the way, I'll point you in the direction. He said, no, it's me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, it's me. We're not looking for answers as humans. We're looking for a relationship. And we're looking for that, and here's why. Because we lost something in Eden that our heart is tuned to try to get back at. So in Eden, there was something in Eden that was so brilliant and beautiful. They didn't worry about God's will there because they had God who's so much better. Eden was this glorious kind of relationship between humans and God. Do you know in chapters one and two, the only conversation we get between humans when they talk to each other, you know, they don't talk, they sing to each other. How cool is that? They sing. And there are theologians that say, prior to the fall, people didn't talk to each other. People sang but because of the fall, we lost our voice. I mean, how beautiful would that be if the way that we converse today was through song? Like even if somebody says something mean to you, if they sing it, it doesn't seem that bad, right? I hate you, yeah. But you know, you said it so kindly that I'm okay with you. Let's move on, let's reconcile. How do we get past this, right? <laughs> so there was something there that was just brilliant that our heart is tuned for. And so what we, we, yeah, God's will is part of the equation, but what we really want is we want him. And so Jacob knows that, hey, I'm glad to be right here right now. This is awesome, but I'm still just a sojourner. I'm still just a sojourner. That's why it was said of Abraham. This is what was said of Abraham, his dad, his grandpa, I should say. It's Hebrews chapter 11. It says that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. These are great, Hebron's great, Beersheba's great. These are great cities. But what I really want is I want the city that God's made. I want to be with God. And until that point, I'm just sojourning. I'm just, so, that's all I am. It's why Augustine, that great fourth century theologian, he would say this, he would say, our hearts are restless. God, what's your will? What am I supposed to do? Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee until that relationship, until that thing is solid, until we found rest in him. There's just this, uh, and Jacob knows that. Just sojourning. 
Because ultimately, I don't know, I don't want God's will. I want God, that's what I want. And then Augustine would say, on top of that one, a statement that I quoted and got me in massive trouble about three years ago, and I'm ready for some more trouble, so I'm gonna quote it again. He said this. He said, love God and do whatever you want. And people told me, you can't say that, Matt, because then people will do whatever they want. And what they want to do is bad things. And my answer is simple. Then they don't love God. Because if you love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength, what you do will be what he wants you to be doing. They go hand in hand because he's changing and forming you with a new heart and writing his will upon that heart. That's what happens, right? That when you have truly been captured by him, by his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and his kindness towards you, what that does is it transforms you into the kind of person that just wants to do God's will and you do whatever you want. That's what's supposed to happen. That's the gospel, right? So let me give you one final story on God's will. It's from a book called Scandalous Freedom by Steve Brown. If you want a good read in 2018, you could read this book. I recommend it, I like it. Steve Brown's Presbyterian pastor, kind of cantankerous, but awesome, totally awesome. And in this book, he tells a story about Abraham Lincoln before the Civil War, before Abraham Lincoln's the big dude he's supposed to be. And so Abraham Lincoln is walking through this square and he sees this auction block where a woman is being sold. And so he feels compelled in his heart to purchase her. And so he does that. And here's what happens. She followed him with anger in her eyes. Another white man who will buy me, use me, and then discard me. As Abraham Lincoln walked off with his property, he turned to her and said, you're free. Yeah, free? What does that mean? It means that you're free. Well, does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes. It means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean I can be whatever I want to be? Yes. It means you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes. It means you can go wherever you want to go. And with tears in her eyes, she said, then I think I'll go with you. That's the gospel. That when you realize Jesus bought us off the auction block to set us free. And his love and his forgiveness is wrapped around us. And when you realize how great his love is for us, then your only response is, man, I think I'll go with you. Who else but you has the words of eternal life? I think I'll go with you. And that's what we celebrate today. When we eat and we drink, what we're celebrating is the incredible love of a God who would give everything for us. The incredible love of the one who would take our fall and redeem it and bring something beautiful from it. That's what we eat and that's what we drink. And so Jesus, this day, may we love you with all of our heart, 
and all of our mind and all of our strength. And may we then do whatever we want because it'll be what you want us to do. I pray as we eat and as we drink on this New Year's Eve, I pray that your grace and your goodness and your mercy and your forgiveness and your extravagant love would pour over us and we would be reminded why we've gathered this day. Because of the good news that we are slaves to sin, condemned to death, and you purchased us with your blood and have forgiven us of our sins and have cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And we eat and drink that and we say, I think I'll go with you. May 2018 be brilliant because we are chasing Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And I ask this in your name, amen.